Africa rise and shine Africa zora Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Onelen Zenzi and Tabiso Nuhoku. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa. Cash-strapped Zimbabwe signs deal worth billions to compensate white farmers. South Africa's ruling African National Congress warns members against corruption during COVID-19 pandemic and US President Donald Trump suggests delaying presidential election. In economics news, South Africa's alcohol ban leads to mass retrenchments. But first up the news with Onelenzinzi. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Lulu. Cote President Alison Ouattara says he needs time to think uh, he, of, of his governing party's nomination for him to stand for a third term in this year's election. Ouattara says he will announce his decision next week. In March, Ouattara said he would not run again to give way to the next generation. The BBC's Mary Harper. 76-year-old Mr Watara surprised many in Ivory Coast when he announced in March he wouldn't stand for a third term, even though the constitution allowed him to do so. But last month, the governing party's nominated successor, Prime Minister Amadou Gonkulebali, died suddenly after a cabinet meeting. So it now looks like the man who promised not to stand will seek re-election. Police in Uganda have for a third consecutive year topped the list of violators of press freedom. An annual report released by the Human Rights Network for Journalists Uganda shows that cases against police officers are still the highest. Uganda police force was again the biggest single violator of media rights, contributing 60% of all violations. In the report, the Uganda Communications Commission has been named the second biggest violator of media freedom, accounting for 22% in addition to to its independence as a regulator being questioned. The Uganda People's Defense Force came third at 3.6%. Abused by mobs against journalists also stood at 3.6%. The number of people who have recovered from COVID-19 in South Africa has now surpassed the 300,000 mark. 309,601 recoveries have been recorded, bringing the number of active cases in the country to 164,756. However, South Africa has recorded 315 new COVID-19-related fatalities, bringing the death toll to 7,812. The number of infections recorded now stands at 482,100. 169 after 11,046 new infections were recorded in the last 24-hour cycle. Zolega Godashe has more. The national death toll is fast approaching the 8,000 mark. The Eastern Cape recorded the highest number of fatalities at 121, followed by Gauteng with 96, 
KwaZulu-Natal 55, the Western Cape 34, and the Northwest 9. The Western Cape has surpassed the 3,000 total fatalities mark and now stands at 3,017, while Gauteng approaches the 2,000 mark, recording a total of 1,932 fatalities. Meanwhile, the recovery rate now stands at 64%. The wife of Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro is tested positive for the coronavirus. Michelle Bolsonaro's results were announced on Thursday after her husband said in an online video that he was taking antibiotics for an infection that left him feeling weak. Jair Bolsonaro tested positive for the coronavirus on the 7th of July and then negative last Saturday. He has been criticized in the past for wanting the swift lifting of isolation orders, arguing that the economy costs overway public health risks. Brazil has the second highest coronavirus infections across the globe, recording over 2.6 million rather cases and 91,000 COVID-19 related deaths. U.S. President Donald Trump has again cast doubt on November's elections. Speaking at the White House, Trump repeated his claim that the widespread use of postal votes due to the coronavirus could lead to massive fraud. He says while he does not want a delay, he also does not want to see a crooked election. Trump's, Trump's earlier suggestion that the vote be delayed was rejected by both Democrats and Republicans. Opinion polls showed Trump losing ground to a trolling Democratic challenger and former Vice President Joe Biden. The Republican senator for Utah is Mitt Romney. In my state, we've had it for some time. It works extremely well. The great majority, I think almost 90% of our voters, maybe more than 90%, uh, vote by mail. And it's a, uh, it's a system that works pretty well. In fact, if there's a problem of some kind alleged, you go back to the paper ballots. You have an actual record. Lastly, in your sports news, Mexico's Gabby Lopez, who won this year's LPGA season opener, is tested positive for COVID-19 and withdrawn from the tour's first event after a five-month coronavirus pandemic shutdown. Lopez was the only player who tested positive in the first pre-tournament testing for the LPGA Drive on Championship, a 54-hole event that tees off today at Interverse Club in Toledo, Ohio. More results from later tests were expected to be revealed as players conducted final practice rounds for the event to be staged without spectators. Lopez is self-isolated and is working with the LPGA and area health officials to contact tracing. LPGA protocols will require Lopez to quarantine for a minimum of 10 days, which could force her out of the next week's LPGA event in nearby Sylvania, Ohio. On the 10th day, Lopez will take another saliva test and undergo a medical evaluation to determine if she can return to competition. Channel African News, I am Onelin Zinzi. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Onele. Zimbabwe's government has signed an agreement worth 3.5 billion U.S. dollars to compensate white farmers evicted from their land under former President Robert Mugabe. After two decades of fighting over the controversial land distribution program, 
Representatives of farmers who lost their land met with government to resolve the matter. The country hopes the deal will attract foreign investment to improve Zimbabwe's ailing economy. The BBC's Audrey Brown spoke to the BBC's journalist Stanley Gwenda. The farmers have long argued for payment and a new constitution in 2013 provides for restitution for losses suffered. It is not payment for the land itself. But the country is broke. So where will the money come from? It involves uh, 2,800 farmers who were part of the negotiations. It's a culmination of a process which started in 2016 uh, when the late President Mugabe was still in power. Some of the money was paid in 2016. I remember about 42 million was paid for about 43 farms. Then in 2017, the government of Zimbabwe paid 134 million to some farmers. The number was not specified. So this deal is a formalization of a process that has already been in motion since 2016. It is $3.5 So how did they arrive at that figure? There was a process which involved some Zimbabwean agricultural experts and the World Bank. So they went to the farms and they evaluated the properties which were lost by the farmers when the land resettlement programs was instituted in the year 2000. But Zimbabwe doesn't have money. Where is it going to come from? And is it clear how that money will be dispersed? That's the million-dollar question. Some are saying, is it the right time for us to be talking about compensating farmers? But what we have been hearing uh, now is that the government will try and approach the international financial markets to raise the funds, and they're going to do it jointly with the white farmers. But the Zimbabwean government's reputation in financial markets is at the moment a little bit checkered because of uh, the default that the country has on many of uh, the past credit that they've got. Now, is this a a sort of uncontroversial move that the government is making? Because I know uh, very many people would say, but the land was taken in the first place from Zimbabwe. And so why should white farmers be compensated when black farmers were not compensated when the land was taken during the colonial era? In actual fact, there are some black farmers who also lost their land during this land resettlement in also very controversial circumstances. But these white farmers are not being compensated for the land. They are being compensated for improvements and equipment that they lost, which was on these farms. And it's something that was agreed in in the 2013 constitution, Zimbabwe's new constitution, which was instituted in 2013. And the government see that as their obligation to be able to compensate these farmers as part of their olive branch is part of their process to try and uh, rebuild relationships with the international community. So this is a very necessary step, actually. Does it come at a political cost inside the country? It does, uh, because of the controversial nature. Some people are arguing that uh, there's no need to compensate the white farmers because they were occupying land which was taken during the colonial time. In fact, they're arguing that this money if ever the Zimbabwe government is going to get it, should be used for more pressing issues like the health issues, construction of roads and improvement of infrastructure in the country. So will the Zimbabwean government get this money, do you think? It's a very difficult uh, undertaking at the moment because of the reputation of the Zimbabwean government. At the moment, the government has got over $10 billion in credits to international lenders and that's where they are trying to go and get this money. So let's wait and see what will happen perhaps in six months time because we are expecting the first batch of payments to be done in in the next six months.
That's a BBC journalist, uh, Stanley Quenda, speaking to Audrey Brown. Zimbabwean police have issued a stern warning against the planned anti-corruption demonstration set to take place today. In a statement issued yesterday, the Republic Police say all security forces will be out in full force to ensure COVID-19 regulations are adhered to. Government has accused opposition leaders who are convening the protest as an attempt to overthrow the government. One opposition leader, Jacob Ngarivume, and investigative journalist Hopewell Chinono were arrested last week for promoting the demonstrations. Noma Bolani compiled this report. The clampdown of movement in Zimbabwe's biggest cities, Harare and Bulawayo, has already begun. Security agencies set up roadblocks on all major roads leading into the CBDs. Mass gatherings and demonstrations are set to be met with force. I want to warn the organizers of this ill-fated demonstration that our security services will be vigilant and on high alert to appropriately respond to their shenanigans. The demonstrations have already been banned and declared illegal by government, citing restrictions on mass gatherings due to the ongoing coronavirus. Demonstrations of such a nature have often turned violent as police clashed with protesters. The president has described the intentions as tantamount to terrorism. The planned insurrection of 31 July 2020 is connected to the violence and destabilization that opposition elements have fomented since 2018, including the 1st of August 2018 violence and the 14 to 16 January 2019 violent disturbances which led to the loss of lives. Activists and opposition parties have continuously accused President Nangago's government of failing to deal with corruption, but analysts believe this time there's strong internal forces within his own party which are calling for drastic political reform. It's very clear that the nature of the crackdown, uh, the nature of the clampdown uh, on civil and political liberties vis-a-vis the 31 July protest is more internal than external. Uh, you would know that the main opposition, which is the, the movement of democratic change led by uh, uh, Nelson Chamisa, despite supporting democratic forces who want to exercise their civil and political liberties, is not at the forefront of this thing. But Zanu, the kind of panic, the kind of threats that, 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 that they are issuing, but also given the political meeting where they brought uh, the director general of the CIO to talk about the uh, officials within ZANU or people who try to undermine Mnangagwa or want to trouble Mnangagwa tells you that what we have are more elite contradictions within the party, differences within ZANU, which is a secretic underlinings which makes ZANPF fear. Because the people who took over power from Mugabe are fundamentally a secretic group. So it is those differences within that secretic group that makes the state or the faction belonging to President Mnangagwa panic. Others believe that government is intimidated by the momentum the anti-corruption movement has, accusing the government of being afraid of a rest of population. My, my challenge with African governments is that uh, whenever there is uh, a cause of disagreement with their citizens, they use coercion and force to enforce their will. Now, that, now, now this to me 
it means that our government lacks confidence in itself. Because if they were confident in themselves and if they believe that they have a popular mandate, there is no need to put the nation in a state of emergency as they have done. So it, it, it actually exposes their weakness because the coercion and the force they are using to impose their will on the citizens in order to prevent a demonstration, it exposes their weakness. The Harare Magistrate Court had denied bail to journalist Hopel Chinono and Jacob Ngarivume, the leader of Transform Zimbabwe, ruling they would continue to incite violence by promoting the July 31st demonstrations. But it seems the detention of the pair has failed to deter those invested in the protest. Rama Bolani, SABC News. One in three children could have been exposed to poisonous lead, potentially causing irreversible harm. That's according to research by UNICEF into the global risk of exposure. The research indicates a third of all children have high levels of lead in their blood, putting their mental and physical health at risk. UNICEF's environment and climate specialist Nicholas Rees spoke to the BBC's Audrey Brown. We have found that Children around the world are being poisoned by lead on a massive and previously unrecognized scale. This new analysis has found that up to 800 million children, a third of the world's children, have blood levels at or above 5 micrograms per deciliter. Now that's a level that the US CDC says is a cause for action. But in fact, there is no safe level of exposure to lead. So how are you able to determine that a third of the world's children are living in conditions that expose them to dangerous levels of lead? We have an improved understanding of the effects of lead exposure. So previously, we didn't know the full range of effects. And in fact, the thresholds were higher because we weren't aware of the effects at lower levels of exposure. So we have a better understanding of how lead affects children now. And we have better monitoring within countries. And how does lead affect children? How does one know that you've been affected by lead poisoning? Well, this is part of why it's been so difficult until now to really get a full global sense. It is difficult to tell. At exposure rates of 5 micrograms per deciliter, we're seeing between a 3 and 5 point drop on IQ. There's effects that it can have on learning disabilities, even levels of aggression, and violence later in life. Studies have shown links between even lower levels of lead exposure, such as at five micrograms, and those effects later on. And the science has improved a lot. We now know that even very low levels of lead exposure can cause these effects. Okay, so it seems like the main effects are behavioral. It's behavioral and cognition. There are also health effects that can materialize later especially for adults that are exposed, the effects don't materialize often till later. Most of the time, people haven't realized that so many of the effects are actually linked to lead exposure when they're felt later in life. And sometimes, you know, a three to five point drop on IQ might not even be incredibly noticeable at first. Or certain learning disabilities, people might think, oh, maybe it was genetic or maybe it was caused by another issue. But in fact, it was caused by lead earlier in a child's life. And the only true way to know is through blood level testing. From the report, I saw that Senegal, Nigeria and Ghana, for instance, appear to have quite different sources of excess lead. In Ghana, mention of the catering industry, for instance, and in Nigeria, where children working in garages. Just give us an idea of where the lead comes from that is poisoning children. It does come from a lot of different sources, but in Ghana, for example, there's an e-waste site that is incredibly toxic. 
But I also want to point out that a lot of the time it's recycling of used lead acid batteries, often in people's backyards, and it gets into that recycling process when done informally and improperly without the right protective equipment. That's where the real risk is. Cutting open and burning components of batteries, and in that process it gets into the air through the fumes, it gets into the soil, it gets into surrounding water supplies. If it affects drinking water, that's a problem. It could also get into the soil that people use to grow food. Lead lasts. So a cottage industry where lead was exposed into the soils and waters 20, 30 years ago is still a problem now. Let's look at the solutions now. Are there companies or are there industries that are still deliberately not clearing up or using too much lead or introducing too much lead in their products? There are places where it's added to spices. It's been found in ceramics. It is used in paints often still in many countries. And it has been also found in toys. So there are definitely companies that are using lead. How long have we known that lead is dangerous and poisonous, not just for children, but for everybody? (laughs) Again, another sad reality. We have known for centuries. Lead was one of the earliest recognized toxic chemical that we have been aware of. So the use of lead then is deliberate. They're using it and they know that it's harmful. I think people should know that it's harmful. I wouldn't say that everyone fully understands. Companies that use lead in children's toys, surely they would know. An aware and informed person should know, yes. Do you think that there should be criminal liability for companies which make products that contain lead? It's a complex process. For example, lead acid batteries. It's not necessarily the existence of a lead acid battery that's the problem. It is the improper recycling of the battery. If lead is entering children's toys, that should be banned. Absolutely. And that's UNICEF's Environment and Climate Specialist Nicholas Rees speaking to the BBC's Audrey Brown. South Africa's ruling African National Congress in the Gauteng province has vowed to act decisively against corruption to protect and preserve the brand ANC. Its provincial executive committee has placed Health MEC Dr. Bandile Masugu and his wife Loiso, who is also MMC for corporate services in the city of Johannesburg, on leave of absence with immediate effect. This follows their involvement in the awarding of an irregular personal personal protective equipment tender to the Bagra Royal Project, a company which belongs to presidential spokesperson Kusela Diko's husband. The party has also referred Diko, Masugu and his wife to the Integrity Committee. Ndebo Mukobo has more. As Gauteng becomes the epicenter of the COVID-19 pandemic, it's also becoming a breeding ground for corruption. Over 100 companies are currently under investigation for possibly inflating prices or other unethical practices in the supply of personal protective equipment. ANC Provincial Secretary Jacob Kawe says it's alleged some officials called companies to give out tenders. Companies did not apply for tender or contract as normal. There was a special arrangement, and this arrangement, the way it is, it is like an official in the department would call companies who would say they can provide, have a discussion with these companies, and award a letter to a company. And this is against the normal procurement. And we understand partly that it's because of the nature of the problem we're dealing with and the agency of the matter in having PPEs. But it also demonstrates that the government was open to manipulation. And therefore, the PC immediately resolved.
that the provincial government has to respond on whether indeed there was a tender bonanza. Some senior party members have also been fingered in these irregular COVID-19 procurement processes and they've since been asked to step aside as Kawe explains. It is against this background that the PC has resolved that both Comrade Bandile and Comrade Kusela be subjected to the Provincial Integrity Committee. And furthermore, the PEC has resolved that the Integrity Committee has to finish its work between two to four weeks. Additional to the decision of the PC, both Comrade Loiso and Comrade Kusela, Comrade Bandile, be on temporary leave of absence for the duration of two to four weeks while the processes of SIU together with the internal process of a PIC is taking place. Kawe said their tough stance on allegations of corruption seeks to preserve the integrity of the ANC brand. To govern people, you've got to move from a premier that it is on their will and that they give you a permission to govern them on the basis that they are convinced that you are credible. And we are mindful of that fact. But in the interest of the brand, ANC members are asked to step aside. And as I said, this is not by any means to undermine law of natural justice, but it is in principle to respect the brand. And we do everything every day. Day, not only on this matter, brand ANC has to rise above personal interest and maintain itself as a 108 years brand. The Houghton government has now appointed roads and transport MEC Jacob Mamabulu as acting health MEC. I am Tebumokobo in Johannesburg. Criminal gangs have kidnapped for ransom at least 170 people near the Virunga National Park in the Democratic Republic of Congo between April 2017 and March 2020. This is according to a new report by the lobby group Human Rights Watch, who say Congolese law enforcement should take steps to dismantle the criminal gangs and arrest those responsible for the kidnappings and sexual violence. Samara Mangesi spoke to Thomas Fessy, senior researcher at Human Rights Watch in London. Our research uh, spans from uh, 2017 and, and we've uh, been able to confirm that at least 170 people uh, were uh, kidnapped near the Virunga National Park in, in eastern uh, Congo. Um, more than half of those people uh, have were uh, women and girls um, and they were uh, systematically raped uh, during detention. Now, these criminal gangs would keep those uh, hostages for up to a week or 10 days, uh, and they would um, detain them uh, in the outside, in the park. They would uh, beat them, they would torture them, and um, they would rape the, the women and, and the girls repeatedly, uh, daily, sometimes by several men uh, during the same day. Now, as indicated in the report, long-standing impunity for sexual violence in the country, as well as a largely dysfunctional system, uh, justice system as is, uh, leave survivors with little recourse for justice. Are you optimistic that the Congolese government will take action to end this reign of terror, as you call it? We're definitely uh, encouraging them to to do so. What what we're saying is that, uh, as far as we know, there's been no investigation uh, open into uh, the armed gangs abuses 
uh, near the and inside the park. Uh, and there's been very little help for the survivors, especially the survivors of rape. So what we would like to see is is that uh, um, you know the Congolese forces, whether it is the police or the military, because uh, many of them are deployed in the area, take action to track uh, those criminal gangs, identify suspects uh, in order to bring them to justice, and they should do so in collaboration with the peacekeeping mission from the UN MONUSCO, which is uh, deployed in the area as well, and park rangers, uh, so that they could increase, for example, their intelligence sharing capacities and work closely with each other uh, to investigate uh, those uh, cases. Now, are the kidnappers following the same mode of operation? Yes, usually they kidnap um, their hostages in the fields while they are working the land or when they are actually walking back uh, home. And and then they take them, so the, the kidnappers are operating in groups of three to five, and then they take their hostages into the park, which is hours of walk away from where they uh, snatch them. Uh, they take them with their uh, hands tied, and then they take them into the park where they were where, 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 where they detain them for uh, up to a week or, or 10 days. And they, not, they don't release them uh, unless the relatives of those uh, hostages uh, pay a ransom uh, that, according to our investigation, ranges from uh, $200 to $600. And you can imagine uh, how much money that is for the families out there. Um, this is basically uh, uh, causing severe financial hardship for uh, for those families who are forced to sell land uh, or are left uh, with no source of income because of those ransoms. And we understand that you have also spoken to the Ruchuru Territories Administrator in the province, Justin Mukanya. What did he have to say? Well, he he was explaining that, uh, you know, rapes in, in that area were definitely motivated by economic interests uh, because those criminal gangs are looking for money uh, they're looking for an easy way to uh, to make money. Um, but uh, what he didn't explain to us is why is it that no investigation has been uh, opened up uh, on the matter? And, and that's where we would like to see the local authorities take action. Uh, he did say that some uh, discussions had been taking place at the community level, um, but uh, obviously uh, with no arrests being made, in three years, you can imagine that there's a lot of work to do in order to solve the, the issue. And, and there's also the issue of uh, rape survivors who are left with very little care uh, once they are released. Um, they are traumatized. Uh, they need proper and adequate uh, post-rape care. Uh, they need psychological and social support. Uh, and all the, the assistance that a rape survivor should be getting they are not getting because of the limited resources uh, in in the area. And the report also says that a number of those kidnapped, as well as those raped, uh, is likely to be higher given the limitations of the research. What will be your next course of action if your call is not heeded? What we're doing now, as we always do after releasing our report, is that we try to engage with the authorities, with uh, which we have already done in the last few days and we will continue to engage with the authorities to uh, hoping that they will be uh, listening to 
to our findings, but so far we've been able to present them with with our findings uh, with with no problem. They, they've been very open to uh, listening to to, to 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 our findings. That was Thomas Fessy, senior researcher at Human Rights Watch in London, speaking to Samara Mangesi. It's seven thirty-one, and our headlines up next with Onelin Zinti. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. The Ivory Coast president, Alison Ouattara, says he will announce next week what his decision is regarding his governing party's nomination for him to stand for a third term in this year's election. The wife of Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro has tested positive for the coronavirus, and Hong Kong leader Carrie Lam is expected to announce the postponement of the September 6 election for seats in the Chinese-ruled city's legislature. Channel Africa News, I'm Onelin Sinsi. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Onele. It is 7.32 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The responsible revival of tourism is underway around the world, according to a new report by UN World Tourism Organization that shows that 87 out of 217 tourist destinations have eased COVID-19-related restrictions for international tourism. In South Africa, government announced on Thursday that intra-provincial leisure travel will now be allowed. For more on this, we are joined on the line by Chifiwa Chivengwa, CEO of the Tourism Business Council of South Africa. Good morning, Chifiwa, and thank you for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. All right, we have lost that connection to Chifiwa Chivengwa, the CEO of the Tourism Business Council of South Africa. We will try and get him back on the line. And uh, you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. This may be a disease that is caused by a virus, but it is spread by human conduct and human behavior. We've now decided that the sale, the dispensing, and the distribution of alcohol will be suspended with immediate effect. Chifiwa Chivengwa is back on the line with us. Good morning, Chifiwa, and thank you for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. And thank you for having me. Now, Chafiwa, I mean, this is something that uh, the tourism industry has been advocating for. Um, you know, accommodation facilities will now be allowed to open for leisure purposes. And, uh, you know, obviously there's still more that needs to be done. But how? What, what's the feeling or what's the reaction to um, the minister's announcement yesterday? Uh, it is a step in the right direction. Uh, it does bring hope uh, to many facilities out there accommodation facilities, and many others that are allowed to operate at the moment, including, you know, the safari vehicles. So it is a welcomed uh, development. Uh, we do hope that, uh, you know, more developments are going to come, although we do note that, uh, you know, it is uh, allowed for only those that are traveling within the province, but nonetheless, it's a, it's a major development or a significant development uh, as far as we see it. So it's a good news. 
uh, for the tourism industry. It shows and also, uh, you know, displays that, you know, government is considering the industry, wants to ease, uh, you know, restrictions. Uh, and therefore, this is welcome news. Now, in terms of uh, the, the the easing of the curfew by an hour for restaurants, um, what's your take on this? And uh, what's the reaction been like from the industry? Because restaurants have been complaining about um, time that they've been given and certain issues that they're facing. No, absolutely. I think, it's a, I think it's a good move. Uh, you know, giving restaurants an additional hour will ensure that, you know, the patrons that are there to have a, a dinner are not rushing home. The last thing you want when, when people are having dinner is for them to rush home. The, the, the industry is built on, you know, ensuring that people are relaxed, ensuring that people can enjoy, you know, their food, and that they need to live when they feel comfortable to live. So this gives them an additional hour uh, to get home. Uh, and also it gives, uh, you know, restaurants, you know, uh, you know more time, uh, you know, to do the final cleanup in the evening before the employees, uh, you know, goes home. So it is a welcome event. Uh, it will go a long way in making sure that, you know, there is an increased uh, footprint in restaurants. And an increased footprint means that, uh, you know, uh, the staff that works at the restaurants can uh, can earn more money, they can earn more tips. Uh, and, uh, you know, we tend to return to some level of normalcy in terms of operating hours, which is welcome news. Now, the ban of alcohol also has an impact on restaurants where um, restaurant owners and, and workers, staff members have been complaining of the fact that uh, having no alcohol with uh, the food, um, you know, uh, people who come to restaurants generally don't spend a lot of time or money there. What's your take on this? And is it like, are we likely going to see a lifting on the ban for, for restaurants maybe to operate at a certain time? Uh, You're quite correct. Alcohol is a a significant, uh, you know, uh, part of the restaurant revenue and profit. Uh, The margins there can range between, you know, 50% to all the way up to 80%, depending on the type of restaurant. Uh, So, you know, the easing of alcohol ban would would allow restaurants to to further, you know, sustain themselves. Now, we do understand the fact that, uh, you know, there are those who don't know how to use alcohol responsibly. Uh, and we do understand the predicament that government is is is, is at uh, because it is indeed uh, you know uh, sort of correct that uh, you know it increases the number of uh, you know trauma cases. However, we need to strike the balance. Uh, we can't just go and ban uh, uh, you know alcohol forever. We need to find some way of ensuring that uh, uh, that you know al- you know those who can use alcohol responsibly you know are able to do so. Uh, and also we need to, to figure out how do we solve this, you know, uh, all the problem of those that abuse alcohol and then abuse children and women uh, and cause chaos within communities. We need to figure that out and we need to solve it. Uh, but we can't ban, uh, you know, uh, alcohol on the basis of, you know, just those few that spoil it for everyone. We need to figure out a solution there. It is a need. Uh, alcohol is indeed, uh, you know, provides margins. And remember, people eat you know, food and have a uh, glass of wine as part of the tradition of going to a restaurant. Uh, it's not uh, people go to a restaurant are not going there to, to drink large amounts of alcohol, uh, you, know, uh, you know, for any other purposes. It's just part of the tradition uh, and the South African tradition thereof of having a glass of wine, having a beer, uh, any other locally produced, uh, you know, uh, alcoholic beverages.
Uh, Chifua, let's speak about the issue of Airbnb and short-term home sharing, um, which is still excluded, um, you know, in, in the new regulations. What does this mean and why were these, uh, you know, facilities excluded? Look, you know, I must explain that, you know, uh, a lot of time people talk about Airbnb. <laughs> Airbnb is an online platform that, uh, you know, people can list uh, you know, their inventory. And, of course, they allow home sharing as part of their inventory. But there are other, uh, uh, you know, uh, guest houses and B&Bs that list on that platform. Now, you know, the, the, the issue there from our discussion is that, uh, you know, when you start to get people to mingle, you know, the guests to mingle with, the, with those that own the home, uh, it may be a, a source of, uh, of uh, transmission, so to speak. Uh, but that has not yet been proven because we have not been allowed to work. Uh, and uh, it's one of those things where, you know, I believe that we need to find a solution, we need to put protocols. It's a matter of people should not interact or should not talk to, to, to those within the family. I think we can put those protocols together. But, uh, you know, the issue around uh, 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 the, the, the short-term home rental or home sharing uh, is precisely around that. And also the fact that, you know, visitation of family is still not allowed, so that may be one of the things that uh, has been considered, uh, you know, uh, uh, to ban that uh, that type of accommodation, but every other accommodation is open. So long as you are in accommodation that is uh, registered uh, as an accommodation by the municipality, uh, you're in accommodation that uh, you know it's recognised as such. You're allowed to operate, and uh, people should be able to come, and uh, they should be able to relax, and we should be able, as the industry, to provide that hospitality that we've always offered to prove to the nation that uh, we are ready to open and we are ready to welcome international guests when, when we reopen fully. Now, South Africa got its first two uh, safe travel stamps from the World Travel and Tourism Council. Speak to us about that. Well, what we have done is that uh, we've taken the protocols that we have created uh, uh, from the Tourism Business Council of South Africa uh, with the industry at large, and those protocols, uh, we took them and we'll subject them to the World Travel and Tourism Council, who then examined our protocols and then came back to us and said, you know, our protocols are approved from their point of view. So, so what has happened since then, I know that there were uh, two hotels that uh, went and got uh, the stamp. It was based on the very same protocols. What we will be doing now is that, uh, you know, we work very closely with the uh, World Travel and Tourism Council from here in South Africa uh, on the basis of the protocols and following those protocols. And we'll be ensuring that people adhere to those protocols. In fact, it's to our, it's to our interest as, a, as an industry uh, to ensure that we follow those protocols and we prove to the world. And not only here in South Africa, you know, throughout Africa, because uh, whatever we do, you know, here in South Africa, whatever people do in SEDEC or, or East Africa community or the West Africa community, you know, is to prove that Africa is ready to open. And we need to do so by implementing these protocols that have been developed. And we need to do so to ensure that, you know, travelers can see, you know, how we do it. They can have the trust and confidence uh, to travel to this continent. We already have enough problems as it is. And I think this is the time where we need to prove to the world that, uh, you know, we've always been diligent. Now, Jafira, very quickly, um, with regards to other regulations, we've already spoken about uh, um, alcohol being one of them, um, you know, international travel. What 
what other issues or what other restrictions are you looking to have government um, remove very soon that you're probably in discussions with government about? Um, we need um, interprovincial travel, uh, meaning that people should be allowed to move across provinces freely. Uh, that will allow accommodation to open fully for everyone and also allow activities that are tourism-related to also operate. So that's the next thing that we need to to address and that we need to ensure that it happens. Now, after we have ensured that, we need to make sure that you know international inbound is open. Even if we have to start with regions, uh, we need to do so. We start with various regions. We get uh, people to, to fly in and out of South Africa. Uh, and then, uh, you know, we can create bubbles or corridors or bridges with many different countries that have similar type of risk when it comes to COVID-19. So, so, so those are the next steps that we need to, 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 to do. The, the, the other part is that we need to look at legacy issues. We still have issues around uh, visa, uh, you know, which, which doesn't make it easy for people to travel to South Africa. We need to look into that. The e-visa that we've been talking about has to be completed has to be implemented so that, you know, people can come to South Africa easily. And we need to also consider many other countries uh, for visa waivers uh, so that they don't have to go through the burden of, uh, of applying for visa. I think this is the time to look into these things to ensure that when we fully reopen, uh, we reopen, uh, you know, with strength uh, and we're able to attract more tourists coming from various countries to come to, to South Africa. So those are some of the things that uh, we ought to work in. Uh, and we ought to solve uh, as soon as possible. Now, Chifua, before I let you go, um, apart from the COVID-19 pandemic that is a global pandemic, the perception of South Africa as a tourism destination, do you think this is, this is uh, the only issues that we have in terms of the pandemic, or are there other underlying issues going forward that need to be tackled by the tourism industry? Uh, we, we still need to clean up our image as a country, uh, even from the country perspective. Uh, you know, we have had issues with uh, xenophobic attacks that we still need to deal with and we still need to fix. Uh, and, uh, you know, we have other issues around, you know, the perception of crime or the reality of crime uh, that we still need to fix. Safety and security of tourists is, is, is paramount uh, and it needs to be, you know, dealt uh, with, you know, uh, uh, immediately. We have raised these issues in the past to say that uh, uh, we need to have some sort of a tourism police in various areas to make sure that uh, you know tourists are not taken advantage of. And we are working on that now uh, to ensure that uh, you know as, as soon as we reopen, we can implement these things. So, so if we can fix safety and security, we have to fix the issues of image. Uh, you know, the, this you know xenophobic attacks that we had. The marketing part of it has to come come, you know, with it uh, to make sure that, you know, as a destination, our, our brand image, it, it's somewhat clean uh, and uh, people start to look at us as a friendly, you know, and uh, accommodating tourist destination that is hospitable to everyone. So we need to deal with those things, you know, as we go and we need to ensure that, uh, uh, you know, they are fixed. They may not be tourism issues, but they do impact tourism. Uh, they have a large impact uh, on the number of people, you know, who consider coming to South Africa. You know, what we have seen in the past, you have, you know, let's say it's a million people who, who are interested in coming to South Africa, but you, you, you'll only get, uh, you know, 100,000 or less than 100,000 out of a million because of these issues that we need to deal with. Safety, safety and security, one of the biggest stumbling blocks in our industry. 
Chifiwa, we'll leave it there for now. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. That's Chifiwa Chivengwa, CEO of the Tourism Business Council of South Africa, joining us on the line. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. This may be a disease that is caused by a virus, but it is spread by human conduct and human behavior. We've now decided that the sale, the dispensing, and the distribution of alcohol will be suspended with immediate effect. There is now clear evidence that the resumption of alcohol sales has resulted in substantial pressure being put on hospitals, including trauma and ICU units, due to motor vehicle accidents, violence, as well as related trauma that are alcohol-induced. Channel Africa. It's 7.48 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Former U.S. President Barack Obama delivered a powerful eulogy for the late civil rights leader and congressman John Lewis. While delivering the eulogy at the funeral, Obama called on politicians to revitalize the voting rights law that Congressman Lewis was willing to die for. Former Presidents George W. Bush and Bill Clinton also attended the service. Take a listen. The Voting Rights Act is one of the crowning achievements of our democracy. That's why John crossed that bridge. That's why he spilled his blood. And by the way, it was the result of Democratic and Republican efforts. President Bush, who spoke here earlier, and his father signed its renewal when they were in office. President Clinton didn't have to because it was the law when he arrived, so instead he made a law to make it easier for people to register to vote. But once the Supreme Court weakened the Voting Rights Act, some state legislators unleashed a flood of laws designed specifically to make voting harder especially, by the way, state legislators where there's a lot of minority turnout and population growth. That's not necessarily a mystery or an accident. It was an attack on what John fought for. It was an attack on our democratic freedoms. And we should treat it as such. If politicians want to honor John, and and, and I'm so grateful for the legacy and work of all the congressional leaders who are here. But there's a better way than a statement calling him a hero. You want to honor John? Let's honor him by revitalizing the law that he was willing to die for. Naming it the John Lewis Voting Rights Act That is a fine tribute, but John wouldn't want us to stop there, just trying to get back to where we already were. Once we pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, we should keep marching. And uh, that is former U.S. President Barack Obama delivering the eulogy for the late civil rights leader and congressman John Lewis. It's 7.51.
Central African time and our economics updates up next with Tabi Solohoku. Thanks, Lulu, and good morning. COVID-19 might have resulted in the loss of 9,000 jobs in Eswatini, but there is hope for economic resuscitation. A new World Bank report suggests that the African continental free trade area will be an opportunity for countries to boost growth reduce poverty and broaden economic inclusion. The report states that if fully implemented, the trade pact could boost regional income by 7% or 450 billion US dollars, speed up wage growth for women and lift 30 million people out of extreme poverty by 2035. The Wines of South Africa organization says that the alcohol ban is costing the industry more than 17 million US dollars a week. Spokesperson Marina Kolo says an estimated 18,000 jobs were lost and up to 80 sellers were closed during the initial ban. She says that the introduction of the ban on local sales will result in the closure of more wineries and, depending on the length of the ban, job losses in excess of 30,000. For each week that this ban remains in place, our industry loses another 300 million rand. And this number does not account for the roughly 100 million rand that is lost each week on wine tourism as well. Add to this the estimated 3 billion rand that has already been lost at the beginning of the lockdown, and this picture looks decidedly bleak for our farmers. Workers' Union Nahau in South Africa's Limpopo province has criticized the Provincial Command Council's statement, which indicates that high absenteeism by the civil servants from workplaces compromises service delivery. The Command Council says that workers use the spread of the coronavirus as an excuse not to go to work. It has had its meeting on Wednesday. Nahau spokesperson Jacob Adams has described the statement as irresponsible. This is a very dangerous statement by the command council to the public because it paints the public servants as responsible and it has a potential to mobilize society against workers. This tendency is insensitive to the plight of workers who are working under very unsafe working conditions and in danger of getting infected with COVID-19 on a daily basis. Workers in Limpopo do not need such irresponsible statements from the command council, especially during this time. The Namibia Stock Exchange is expected to list another capital pool company, Ngube Investments One Limited, this morning. This company has Swapo member Amos Shiyuka, veteran broker and former Namibia Stock Exchange Chief Executive Officer John Mandy and former Chief Financial Officer at Standard Bank Namibia Brian Mandy as directors. According to an abridged pre-listing announcement made on the exchange's news platform last Friday, the company was formed and incorporated in Namibia in September 2016 as a non-operating cash entity. Zambia has engaged a franchise spa and other 
potential investors to explore corporate finance strategies on how to manage a smooth exit from the local market. Spa Zambia Limited recently closed its retail outlets across the country after operating in Zambia for over 16 years. Minister of Commerce, Trade and Industry Christopher Yaluma says that the decision by Spa Zambia Limited is being actualized at the time when countries globally have been adversely affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. The U.S. dollar is trading at 383 Nigerian Nara, 1129 Botswana Pula, 106.74 Kenyan Shilling and 1821 Zambian Guacha. In BRICS currencies, Brazil won U.S. dollar costs 5 rolls 16, Russia 73 rubles 18, India 74 rupees 61, China 7 yuan and in South Africa it's 16 rand 73. The US dollar is also trading at 76 pence to the British pound, 85 cents to the euro, gold $1,947, platinum $887 pounds, Brent crude oil $41.89 a barrel. Africa rise and shine. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. That wraps up Africa Raz and Shine today and for the week. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Ronald Piri, technical producer Wiseman Mangele, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Channel Africa One. Now, taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Mafigi Zolo with a track titled Ngege Balunge. Have a good weekend and stay safe.
Hey! 